0: Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're uh, tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk Radio Show features a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. So in this show, we talk about talent in two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. So hopefully you see how that works. The, the word talent has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show really looks to explore those two areas as best we can. My guests uh, typically include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, coaches, thought leaders, just a gamut of, of, of great people yeah, out in the business world that we love to have them share their stories. So what generally happens is I'm out at networking events or industry conferences, and I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. In fact, today's guest, who we're going to be focusing on for the, the entirety of the show, is someone who I met out in uh, Vail, Colorado at the HR.com show. I was fortunate enough to have been recognized myself, but he was there as our one of the keynote speakers, and I uh, found a way to somehow get him to appear on the show, and we're really delighted he's going to be there today, uh, with us uh, for the whole, whole hour. I generally created this forum to allow you to listen in our dialogue and hopefully learn some practical advice that will impact your own career in a positive way. So before I get to my guest, Marshall Goldsmith, I want to thank those of you tuning in live today. Don't forget, you can submit your questions to him right now via Twitter by just sending them to peopleg 2 Use that hashtag, all one word, talent talk. And my producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show uh, amongst other uh, things that we have ready to ask him. Don't forget, you can also uh, listen to this show on iTunes or Android. Just subscribe to the podcast of Talent Talk. We already have. 33,000 people that are downloading and listening to the show every single week, and we really appreciate your support uh, and uh, taking the time to listen now on the treadmill or on the drive home or whatever you're, you're deciding to, to share with us. So, with that said, let's get today's show started. My guest uh, is Marshall Goldsmith. He's a renowned business coach and author. He's also a generally really nice guy. He uh, has also been named uh, one of the top 10 most influential business thinkers in the world. And uh, one of the top rank executive coaches at the recently at the 2013 Biennial Thinkers 50 ceremony in London. And there's many more accolades we can talk about in books, but we'll get to that in just a second. But let me get to the, the beginning here, and that's to welcome you. Thank you, Marshall, for being on the show.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: I, I'm sure we'll get into the, your background a bit more as we talk, but maybe you can give the listeners a little idea of who you are in case they've been living under a rock or they don't read business books. Um, who you are and what you do.
2: Well, my name. Marshall Goldsmith. I'm from a small town in Kentucky called Valley Station, Kentucky. Went to engineering school at a little school, Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Indiana. Got an MBA at Indiana U, PhD at the Anderson School at UCLA. I was college professor and dean at Loyola when I was very young. Then for thirty seven years I've done three things. One is I give talks or teach classes. I travel all around the world teaching executives, and now about half of my teaching is outside the US. Two, which I'm most famous for, is I coach executives, and my coaching clients are the CEOs or could be CEOs of huge organizations. Uh, For example, I'm having dinner on Sunday with Alan Mulally, who just retired as the CEO of Ford, was ranked as CEO of the year in the United States, Jonathan Klein, CEO of Getty Images, Ian Reed, CEO of Pfizer, Uh, Deanna Mulligan, CEO of Guardian Life, just a bunch of wonderful people. So my coaching, and Dr. Jim Kim, President of the World Bank. My coaching clients are CEOs or could be CEOs of huge organizations. And what I love about coaching is that's where I learn everything. Then the third thing I do is write and edit books and articles. So I've done about 35 books, sold a couple million copies, and two New York Times bestsellers. My most popular book is called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And writing is how I reach people.
1: Introduced to you to your writing originally, but uh, the way you and I got connected, as I mentioned before, was uh, at the conference when you were speaking and really talking about uh, some of the really interesting uh, topics and points of view that you bring into the conversation. And uh, which is why, you know, today is actually our one year anniversary of, of this radio show, which is why we wanted to have you uh, here to kind of celebrate that and have someone really impactful for our listeners to, to help us uh, celebrate beyond putting a candle in a piece of carrot cake. Uh, thank
2: you number one for inviting me and number two congratulations thank you
1: you mentioned your writing and let's maybe talk about that for a second you're a prolific writer i remember seeing large stacks in your house there of all the different books and translated in many different languages so if today was the first time that someone had met you you know and didn't know anything about you or your work maybe what's the one book you would suggest that they read to kind of start off and get a taste for for what you're about and, and what you're trying to teach
2: I would recommend they start with the book, What Got You Here? Won't Get You There. Second, I'd recommend go to my website, www.marshallgoldsmith.com. I give everything away. So all my material, they can copy, share, download, duplicate, use in church, charity, nonprofit. I've got hundreds of videos online. They can go to YouTube and see you know hundreds of videos. So I give everything away. So hopefully anybody would like to use any of my material, use it any way you want. If you have any listeners in Japan, we just had 150 articles translated into Japanese.
1: So what what is it about that book that uh, you think really resonates with people?
2: I had the privilege before he died of spending 50 days with Peter Drucker, the world's authority on management. Mm-hmm. I was on his advisory board for 10 years. Peter Drucker said, we spend a lot of time helping leaders learn what to do. We don't spend enough time helping leaders learn what to stop. Well, that book is one of the first books that really addresses the issue of teaching successful people what to stop. The problems that occur with success. We all talk about the blessings that occur with success. We don't talk about the challenges that come with success. Unique ideas for helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior.
1: And what are some of those problems that come along for successful people that they tend to have to deal with?
2: Well, one of the most common is, I was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review and asked a question. What is the number one problem of all the successful people that you've ever worked with over the years? And my answer, winning too much. What does that mean? If it's important, we want to. Win, meaningful, win, critical, win, trivial, win, not worth it, win anyway. <laughs> winners love winning. Successful people are winners in the game of life, and it's hard for them not to constantly win. I'll give you a case study that almost all my successful clients fail, and almost all of your li- uh, listeners will fail this case study. And when I say failed, they will fail themselves. Here is the case study. You want to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your husband, wife, partner, friend wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. You need argument. You go to restaurant Y. It was not your choice. The food tastes awful and the service is terrible. Option A, critique the food. Point out our partner was wrong. This mistake could have been avoided had only you listened to me, me, me. Option B, shut up. Eat the stupid food. Try to enjoy it and have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? Almost all my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. What should I do? Shut up. Right. <laughs> Second classic problem, adding too much value, especially for engineers, technically trained people. What's that mean? I'm young, smart, enthusiastic. and come to you with an idea. You think it's a great idea. Rather than just saying great idea, our natural tendency is to say, that's a nice idea. Why don't you add this to it? The problem is the quality of the idea may go up 5%. My commitment to execute the idea may go down 50%. It's no longer my idea. Now it's yours.
3: Mm-hmm. incredibly
2: difficult for smart, successful people not to constantly go through life adding value. One of my good coaching clients retired a few years ago. His name is JP Garnier. He was CEO of Jack, uh, GlaxoSmithKline. I said, what'd you learn about leadership as a CEO of this huge company? He said, I learned a hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. Mm. He said, if they're smart, they're orders. And if they're stupid, they're orders. And if I want them to be orders, they're orders. And if I don't, they're orders anyway. I asked him what you learn from me when I was your executive coach that helped you the most? He said, You taught me one lesson that helped me be a better leader and have a happier life. Ask him what was that lesson? He said, Before I speak, stop and breathe. And ask myself one question Is it worth it? And he said, as the CEO of this huge company, fifty percent of the time I've had the discipline to stop and to breathe and ask myself, Is it worth it? What did I decide? Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it?
1: No. So it's almost like you are you you know, you go through this process to become this great, successful person. Then you almost have to rewire yourself or reinvent yourself in a way to continue to be successful. Am I paraphrasing that
2: correctly? Totally correct. Because what happens is, see, at the bottom, you're an achiever. At the top, you're a leader. There's a big difference. One of my great coaching clients, Alan Mulally, taught me a great lesson. He said, uh, every day I drive to work, I tell myself, leadership is not about me. Leadership is about them. For the great achiever it's all about me you know me winning me being right me being smart me achieving something for the great leader it's all about them them winning them being right them being smart them achieving very hard to make this transition
1: Yeah, very hard. And I imagine, how do you see that being different from, let's say, the CEO of mine or the CEO of a small $5 million company that's, you know, doing local business? Do you see a difference there in how those two CEOs would interact with their people?
2: In some ways, it's even harder for founders. Mm -hmm. Hard for a founder to let go. I've worked with a lot of founders before, and you know, it's hard. I mean, I mentioned Jonathan Klein, it's a multi billion dollar business, but he is one of the founders of Getty Images. Mm -hmm. And it's really tough for a founder to let go. Why? It's in your heart. You know, it's it's not just a business, it's you, it's your identity. One of the biggest challenges of founders is just that of letting go, delegating, realizing it can't be all about them if they're going to grow the business.
1: Uh, it's a tough challenge. I know I know. I wrestle with it all the time being a founder. <laughs> sure. So we talked a little bit there about, you know, what are some of the things that uh, CEOs are, are, have as a challenge, but what are maybe some of the things that uh, CEOs and leaders are doing right, right now at this moment in time? Are there things that you're kind of seeing that we are getting right, that, you know, any, any, any good CEO should really be looking at and making sure they're doing right as well?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, the people I work with all share some common characteristics one they have the courage to look in the mirror and they have the humility they can admit they can improve and they have the discipline to follow up and work hard and stick with it and focus on improvement you know courage discipline and humility if you want to be a better leader those are three good ingredients it's hard to look in the mirror Mm
3: -hmm.
2: it's hard to have the humility to admit you know you can do better and it's hard to have the disciplined effort to follow up and improve if you do that though, you can get better and, and a lot of leaders work with that
1: I work with do and you said you know it's hard to look in the mirror. Does it generally take somebody though to kind of help you? you know, I guess you could use the example of maybe someone holding the mirror for you and and kind of helping you make sure you're looking into that is that is that a part of that really good process for someone to grow and get better?
2: Well, the answer there is, yes, that's what I do. I have somebody call I calls me up on the phone every day and listens to me answer 32 questions. By the way, I'm now gonna teach your leaders a process. Are you ready? I'm ready. This is a process, and you can use it yourself. This is a process that will help you get better at almost anything, takes two minutes a day, and costs nothing. It's called the daily question process. Now, every day, a woman named Kate calls me on the phone. Every day, she listens to me read 32 questions that I wrote and provide 32 answers that I wrote. Somebody asked me, why do I have somebody call me on the phone every day? Don't I know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I have somebody call me on the phone every day. I know how hard it is. I have 11 million frequent flyer miles on one airline. That's an excuse to be an alcoholic, an excuse to be uh, divorced, an excuse to be out of shape. A lot of excuses I can make with 11 million miles, those excuses don't matter. It's hard for you, it's hard for me, it's hard for everybody to, to do what we need to do in life. Well, here's the way it works. Get out an Excel spreadsheet. On one column, you write down a series of questions. These questions represent what are important for you in your life. Every question has to be answered with yes, no, or number. Seven boxes across, one for every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, fill it out every day. Now, I'll share some of my questions. They're not intended to be yours. And if any of your listeners would like all my questions, send me an email, Marshall at com. I'll send you all the questions. But the idea is you write your own questions. One of mine every day is, how many times yesterday did you try to prove you were right when it was not worth it? I've almost never got a zero my whole life. It's kind <laughs> of hard for that old professor not to be right. Mm-hmm. Now how about you? Do you occasionally try to be right a little too much?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know uh, you and I talked about this spreadsheet a little bit, and I can tell everyone it, it, it's hard to do. <laughs> Very hard, and it's hard to. Not only is it hard to do, it's hard to keep doing it. And that's where I feel like I keep failing. as I get busy, or I get, you know, I'm out of town, or whatever, and I I stumble and I don't do it, and then it's really hard to get back into trying to do it again. And uh, it's tough. Yeah,
2: it's incredibly humbling. Another one of my questions is, uh, how many angry or destructive comments did I make about people? How many minutes did I walk? Did I say or do something nice for my wife, my son, my daughter? just a bunch of questions about writing and coaching and teaching and life health. It's hard to do because what happens is every day you have to look in the mirror.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: what I teach people is, you know, every company pretty much has these value plaques on the wall. They all say the same thing, customer and quality and people and all such stuff. Those are talk values. If you want to know your real values, you just make that list, fill it out every day. And at the end of the week, the Excel spreadsheet gives you a scorecard. And as you've already learned that picture at the end of the week is not quite as pretty as those plaques on the wall. Yes. It's every day you learn life is really easy to talk. Life is hard to
1: live. Mhm. It's hard to live, especially the way that you know you should live or the way you want to live. I almost pulled the question off my spreadsheet, have I worked on my book today? Because I kept saying no, and my score was, you know, zero. Uh, you know, it was terrible, and I just got, you know, am I not making enough time? I mean, I started to almost avoid it because I knew I needed to be doing it. But it's sure. it's, it's it's tough, and it really it shines a light almost on some of those little areas where you're failing. You're saying, you know, maybe you don't want to to be reminded about.
2: It's a great example because, you know, writing is hard. hmm I know. Yeah. I'm working on my new book today.
1: Right. So that kind of gets into what leaders can do. And, and for those of you who are listening uh, live, don't forget we will have this as a podcast. So if you're fiercely writing notes, don't worry. You can download the podcast later on and hear uh, Marshall's uh, site and his email again and his suggestions uh, a little bit later. We talked a little bit about this here at the beginning about what CEOs and leaders are doing as it comes to failing. And you said about trying to be right and trying to add on their little spin to these great ideas or focusing on winning too much. But are there other areas that you commonly see leaders failing, maybe outside of of where you're coaching, but just in general?
2: One is just spending time to coach and develop people. Mm -hmm. Executives are busy. And what I really want to have happen as a CEO is I want to call you in the office. You're a 55-year-old man, say. I want to call you in and say, you know, you really need to listen better. And I want to have some fantasy that your entire life is going to change. And you're going to be a better listener because of these wise comments. And your entire life will change because I sprinkled some tidbits of wisdom on your head. Well, you know, it doesn't quite work that way. Mm-hmm. People I coach are incredibly gifted, brilliant people who want to get better and work hard. It's not easy. Why? It's not easy to change. Right. And one of the problems that CEOs have is they're so busy. They want to just be able to say three or four words and expect the entire world is going to change and they're not going to have to follow up and they're not going to have to coach people and are not going to have to stick with it. What I try to teach them is that's not the way the real
1: world is. Yeah, that that can be a huge challenge, especially, like you said, as they rise up to that particular level, making that change is huge. I I know I, no matter, it feels like no matter how much I communicate to my staff, they still would like more. Of course. (laughs) That's always, I always feel like, well, geez, I really over communicated this week and I could still get feedback. No, we'd like a little bit more, you know, and that's partly because I think I can communicate it in three or four words or a sentence instead of writing, you know, or really, going into it in depth like i should Uh, free
2: coaching for you are you ready yes you just illustrated one of the biggest problems of all the people i've ever coached in the world it's called the fundamental attribution error we look at other people and we think i understand this why don't they Uh uh-huh why aren't they like me one of the leaders who i just totally respect recently got fired general eric shinseki was head of the va General Shinseki was head of the U.S. Army, just a wonderful human being, got shot twice, an American hero. He just got fired as head of the VA. What did he do wrong? And he said it. It was fundamental error. He said, I have integrity. I'm used to being around people with integrity. It never dawned on me that people would lie to me. That's what happened. People did lie to him. They weren't him. Well, when we deal with others, we kind of expect they're going to be us. Sometimes they are. Sometimes in his case, unfortunately, they weren't. They did lie to him.
1: I mean, that's especially true to people we like too. It's very, very easy if you get along with someone, you feel some some similarities or characteristics with another person, then you they can. It's an easy trap to then assume that everything else about them and, and how they're going to interact is going to be just like you.
2: Exactly. The other thing is, the higher up you go, the more people suck up to you. <laughs> so you start believing that, you know, oh, they like your jokes and they think you're smart and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And they agree with you all the time. Well, they're oftentimes just sucking up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, <laughs> We've definitely seen that one. Well, we have uh, a lot more questions to ask for you, uh, Marshall, if you just want to hold on a moment. We're going to take our first uh, quick commercial break. We'll be back here in just about a minute, and we'll uh, get into the next good set of questions. Thank you. Hold on, hold on, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. <laughs>
4: When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret with 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers. For over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management.
1: welcome back to the talent talk radio show don't forget you can tweet your questions live right now to at 2 and use that hashtag all one word talent talk we've had some uh, really good questions come in uh, through the twitter feed uh where we're still looking for the uh creme de la creme so if you have some please send them our way and we'll try to work them into the show so uh getting back here with uh marshall goldsmith so far we've been learning a lot and uh I'm sure many of you, like myself, are taking some good notes. Uh, The next question I had for you, Marshall, was, you know, what should we, you know, those of us that would define ourselves, uh, if that's even a good term, uh, as lifelong learners, maybe what should we be tuned into right now that's maybe kind of going on right now in corporate America or is maybe the next wave of of learning or or things to to be looking at? Is there something kind of coming down the pipe that you might tune us into?
2: One thing you need to be aware of is new types of learning. I'm doing a new video every week now for 50 weeks, I don't know if you've seen any of them yet. Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's available through my website or you can get it on Thinkers50. My good friend Elliot Macy is a world expert on e-learning and he said the author of the future is a video producer. So I think there's a lot of truth to that, I think you're going to see a whole lot more short videos. Things that can be done in a very, very short period of time, that's going to rise up more. And what you see less of is people buying books and selling and reading books. Mm -hmm. So it's just I'm I'm not making a value judgment. It's not necessarily good or bad. It just kind of is. It's a different world out there. So I think you it's know, very important for us to adjust to the new world.
1: Yeah, and we've definitely seen that with video. And to be honest, not trying to be self-serving here, but we've seen that with our, our show as well with the audio. So uh, it's been amazing that people want to interact with things in a different way than just books or just blogs or wherever they're getting their content. But it always does seem to be a nice a stepping stone. So they come in through one avenue, and that might still leads those who are the most interested and the most engaged back to books in the long run whether they be audiobooks or traditionally read books but uh, it does seem like the the twitter world has really pushed more content into that quick snippet get an idea get you know is this for me or not is this what i want to learn or not and before they spend you know the time and money to buy a book and to read it through its entirety they want to get you know exposed to that idea We've certainly come up with a couple different things that we've talked about here today. And, uh, and looking at those different learning types, I think that's a really, really important thing that uh, we're, we're seeing. I mean, we know our clients want to learn in different ways. Our employees want to learn in different ways. And so uh, Marshall's saying he's seen that as well. So maybe to kind of go a totally different direction, uh, I know when I came down and had a nice walk with you a few months back, uh, you spoke a lot in great detail about your connection to Buddhism. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that impacts your view on business and coaching and, and your life in general.
2: Well, you know, as we discussed, there are many schools of Buddhism. So when someone says they're Buddhist, it doesn't really help you very much because Buddhists said, only do what I teach if it works for you. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work for you, just don't do it. <laughs> well, if you look at Christians, the difference between a Protestant, a Southern Baptist, a Catholic... Um, uh, Unitarian, they're pretty big. Mm-hmm. Differences in Buddhism can be even bigger. Right. So, people who say they're Buddhist can be legitimately Buddhist, yet have very different ways of interpreting Buddhism. My school of is a religious school, it's a philosophical school. And my school could be summarized very simply be happy now. Uh, this is heaven, this is hell, this is nirvana. It's not on the outside somewhere, it's on the inside. And the essence of life is learning happiness, peace, and contentment where we are. In my coaching, I practice something called Feed Forward, which I love Feed Forward. It's very Buddhist. Again, you learn to ask for ideas, listen, think about the ideas, thank people, don't judge or critique, never promise to do everything people say, and follow up. And that's a very, very Buddhist concept because it doesn't involve judging people or proving people are wrong. It's a process that really lets you focus on learning from people. So, I use a lot of Buddhism in my uh, work, and by the way, I am a, a not a religious, a philosophical Buddhist. Anybody can practice the type of Buddhist philosophy I can if you 're a Christian or a Muslim or whatever you happen to be from a religious point of view or an atheist. You can still use Buddhism in the same way I use it
1: it 's certainly a fascinating I know you I think you had told me you read you know not every book that 's out there, but you certainly have read a lot of books on Buddhism uh, and seem to have a very, very uh, deep knowledge. Uh, from all those different aspects that really seems to, to emanate both in your approach to, to the general public, to your coaching clients, and I, I think it's really u- unique in how it ends up going forward. Now, you mentioned that feed-forward principle. Maybe you could, could talk a little bit more about that.
2: Well, you know, I do a class, and when I teach classes, I almost always do the feed-forward exercise. So I'll stand up in front of the group and say, Group, we're now going to practice something called feed-forward. In feed-forward, you're going to be in two roles. Role number one is called learn as much as I can. And I always say, are there smart people in this room, yes or no, and everyone says yes. So I say, now's your chance to learn from these smart people. Then role two is go help as much as I can. Then I say, are there nice people in this room, yes or no, and everybody says yes. Well, there's a chance to help these nice people. And then in feed-forward, you're going to be two roles. Rules. Rule number one is no feedback about the past. I always say we spend too much time talking about the past, you know. Have you ever been impressed with your wife, husband, or partner's near photographic memory of your previous sins, which have been documented and will be shared (laughs) with us in a repetitive way? But you know what? We can't change the past anyway. So one rule is no feedback about the past, and two, you can't judge ideas or critique ideas. So I have people talk to as many people as they can in a manner that's positive, simple, focused, and fast. And they say, my name is, I want to get better at, and whatever they pick to improve needs to come from their heart. And they say, please give me ideas for the future. People give me ideas. I say, thank you. The other person says, my name is I want to get better at. Thank you. They talk to as many people as they can. Then at the end of the exercise, I say, give me one word to describe this exercise. And people say this exercise was invariably positive, useful, helpful, or even fun, no matter what country I'm in. Then I say, well, what's the last word you think to describe any feedback activity? Fun. Anyone ever call you on the phone and say, I have feedback I'd like to share with you. Come into my office and you said fun, fun.
3: Right. Fun
2: is the last <laughs> word you think of. Get people to find this exercise as positive, useful, helpful, or even fun. So I say, Why? And I say, Well it's fast, it's non judgmental, it's positive, it's focused on what I can do, what I can't, creating a positive future, not reliving a humiliating past and no judging. So anyway, it's a big essence of how I do coaching speed forward is kind of one of the centerpieces of my whole coaching process.
1: Well, I think you're also hitting on a really important area that most people really struggle with, and that is whether it's regret or it's that fear of repeating a past mistake. Regardless of where you're on the food chain within an organization, I think everyone can uh, empathize with that. That you kind of live your life a little bit thinking about those things and that exercise is more completely focusing away from that and only on those those future events and uh, what's the most positive outcome i mean I, I forget the quote but it's something like you know if you knew you couldn't fail what what would you act, what would you try to accomplish you know it's that, that kind of a, of a scenario so you know when you're when you're not writing or speaking or coaching or Discussing Buddhism or, or all the different things that are going on in your life. You, you know, you have a, a family as well. And But I assume you pick up a book or two from time and again. And maybe uh, recently I'm hoping you might have had a book that you read uh, that you might well, yeah, suggest me, to our listeners. Let me give
2: you a, a recommendation I like. Okay. And you mentioned Buddhism. This is a Buddhist book by an author named Thich Nhatang. T H I C H. N H A T H A N H. And the name of the book is called Old Path White Clouds. I love this book. Old Path White Clouds. And it's, it looks like a huge book, so you might be sort of intimidating to look at. It's really easy to read. It reads like children's bedtime stories almost. And it's a wonderful, really positive, upbeat kind of a book. So I, I highly recommend it.
1: Well, that uh, sounds like a great book. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, we do all of our guests' uh, book suggestions uh, up on our uh, talenttalkradio.com uh, page. Mm-hmm. You can always get in there or on the blog. Uh, we always have those great suggestions there, so we'll add this one to the great list that that we have started. Sounds sure. like a, a great book. If we can go back in time a little bit uh, earlier in your life, uh, before the things that you mentioned, even maybe even before you were a professor and a dean and all that, I'm going to assume that there might have been some important people or events in your life that really impacted your views on leadership. Okay. Could you talk about one of those or people or events? Sure, I can give you a few of them. Great.
2: Uh, How did I get into executive education purely by accident? I met a very wonderful man named Dr. Paul Hersey, one of the inventors with Ken Blanchard of Situational Leadership. and He was kind enough to let me follow him around when I was young and watch him do what he did, and I tried to do what he did as a teacher. And Then one day he became double-booked, and he said, Can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay you $1,000 for one day. That was uh, 37 years ago. I was 28 years old. $1,000 for one day 37 years ago, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I said, sign me up, coach. (laughs) I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. They were very upset when I showed up. turned out to be very successful. They called Paul up and said, send Marshall again. That's how I got into executive education. And, you know, he totally changed my life. He taught me about teaching. Other people have changed my life. Francis Hesselbein, former CEO of the Girl Scouts, I was... In theory, her coach, but I learned about 20 times from her what she learned from me. Peter Drucker said she was the greatest leader he ever met in his life, which I don't debate. A wonderful and inspirational woman. Peter Drucker, I was on his advisory board for 10 years, had a wonderful opportunity to learn from probably the greatest management thinker in history. And then another person I've learned with is my friend. I talked about Alan Mulally, who I'm having dinner with on Sunday fantastic leader, got ranked number three greatest leader in the world uh, last year behind only the Pope and Angela Merkel. Again, has taught me 10 times whatever taught him.
1: So what are some of the lessons that that he's taught you recently that we, we might share with the audience?
2: What he's taught me is a couple of things. One, I've already mentioned, don't make it all about yourself. Don't get lost in your own ego. Leadership is about them. Really focus on being a servant leader that you're there to help them have a great life. Also, everyone loves him. The secretary, the driver, the janitor, the executive, everyone at every level loves this guy. He's just a wonderful person. And that goes a long way. And some other lessons I learned from him are the importance of structure and discipline. I mean, of all the people I coached, he improved the most. I spent the least amount of time with him. Why? He understood that my coaching process was indeed a transferable process. And he put together structures and discipline plays to make sure that it got done. Well, he has developed a process and he used in Ford that's unbelievably effective called the weekly review process. And every week they go through this very structured discipline process. And, and the results have been obviously fantastic. The stock went from 1 to 17. The company was near bankruptcy ended up being very successful. He was the CEO of the year. Fantastic process. Most people can't do it. Mm-hmm daily question process. It involves a weekly discipline that involves looking in the mirror, dealing with important priorities, facing the reality of performance week after week after week, feed forward week after week after week. Most people can't do it because their egos are too big.
3: Right.
2: He doesn't. Why? He realizes that in life, if we don't have structure, then we have to rely totally on things like memory and self-discipline. And none of us are that self-disciplined, and none of us have a perfect memory, and we forget things, and we get tired, and that's why we need help. And, you know, to me, the greatest leaders are not people who think they're above needing help. They are happy to get help.
1: Yeah, yeah, those the sort of people who want help, want to learn, want to, want to achieve, and and uh, help those around them as well, right? That's right. So, and what about Peter Drucker? I mean, uh, we, we've t- brought his name a few times, and I'm not kicking myself that we never went a little further here. I mean, it, it, some of his ideas and things that he's taught and, and developed, I think, is some of the really most time. I mean, they've really kept, you know, there hasn't been a lot of things that have come around that have ever really diminished, you know, his teachings that the things that he really brought forth. I mean, you can go back and read one of his books now. It's just as good as it was then as it is now, in my opinion. Right. So what, what are some of the big lessons that, uh, you know, he taught you?
2: Well, Peter Drucker taught me one lesson that I use constantly in my coaching. It was probably a third of my coaching practice this year. Every decision in the world is made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Make peace with that. Not the best person, the right person, the smartest person, the prettiest person, the fair person, or even a sane person. Every decision is made by that person. Decisions are made based on power, not on logic or rationality. Very few people in life really understand this lesson. For example, how many times have we gone through life saying, I'm amazed that someone at that level, followed by his crazy, weird, does dumb things, or acts like an idiot, Well, why are we amazed? Did you ever read a history book? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look at the history of the world. Many decision makers are insane people. Well, they're still decision makers. Peter Drucker also taught me our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart we are. Most of us never learn that point. And in life, before I deal with any topic, I should breathe, think, and ask myself a question. Am I willing at this time? to make the effort required to make a positive difference on this topic if the answer is yes go for it the answer is no take a deep breath and let it go most of our lives are wasted on things we're not going to change anyway we complain about the weather the traffic we complain about our bosses we complain about politicians and movie stars we're not living our own life Mm -hmm. if you want to make a difference number one live your own life don't live lindsay Lohan's life she used to be my neighbor in new york and number two, focus on where you can make a positive difference. Don't waste your energy if you're not going to make a positive
1: difference. Yeah, and those are, those are some powerful things that, you know, when you hear them, they, they just click. But as we've we've kind of gone back to a few times today, it's tough to do okay. and, and to put in, and that gets back into that structure. And you need that structure so that you don't have to rely on that memory or self-discipline. And I, I can tell you, when you said that, my, the light bulb in my head went off, that I think lately I've been relying a little too much on memory and self-discipline, and I probably need to push in a little bit more structure to, to balance that out, because that's uh, – and it's tough to do, though. Really tough.
2: Well, it's humbling to admit that mm-hmm. we need help. Yeah. I mean, as I said, how many people would have somebody call them up on the phone every day and listen to answer questions? Not too many. i would be embarrassed? Mm-hmm. There's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto by Dr. Atul Gawande from Harvard Medical School. And you know it's very sobering. If a nurse asks a doctor a series of very simple questions from a checklist, the odds on unneeded infection plummet, and the death rate because of unnecessary infection is cut by two thirds. The huge majority of hospitals around the world do not allow the nurse to ask the doctor the question. Why ego? Right. According to Dr. Gwandi, more people have died because of the egos of medical doctors than died in the Vietnam War, the Afghan War, and the Iraqi War combined. Too much ego. Why they don't want to admit that they need help? What's the first question? Did you wash your hands?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember we I saw a speaker that it might have been from UCLA that uh, I think they, they utilized that program and then and put that in. It was amazing that you know allowing those nurses, allowing everyone involved in the process, the right and the uh, opportunity to ask those questions to really you know focus on patient care. Dramatically, you know, like you said, plummeted the amount of infections and problems and uh, mistakes by by not having that sort of hierarchy there when it comes to those types of things. Exactly. Yeah. Now, wh- one of the things that I've noticed about people that are really successful is they seem to have a high amount of discipline. And and now, just in hearing you talk, I'm wondering if that maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe what they have is a high amount of structure.
2: Well, I mean, it's a combination because when you have structure you don't have to have self-discipline if you can provide needed structure you don't have to rely on memory and self-discipline David Allen is a world's expert on getting organized he always jokes around and says you know the reason I'm the world's expert on getting organized I'm lazy I don't have to try to remember everything mm-hmm. I want to use my brain for creative learning I don't want to use my brain to memorize trivia right well you know Lou Smith is a CEO of Bloomin' Brands, one of my great clients, formerly president of Avon. Her company, they own Outback, Fleming & And she has a highly structured process for menu selection because, you know, what she does is her menu is selected based on what her customers like, shockingly. She found out if she doesn't do this, a lot of the big leaders will just taste stuff and say, oh, I think that tastes good. Let's put it on the menu. And what she points out is, who cares what you think? You're not the customer. Mm-hmm. We're not here to serve you. We're here to serve our customers. So she has a very structured facts and data mindset that really helps. Why? She's putting stuff on a menu that the customers want. And she doesn't have leaders rely on their own taste, which may or may not have anything to do with the taste of their customers.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I want to hear more about that. We're going to take our last quick commercial break, and then we're going to finish up here with Marshall Goldsmith, our uh, guest here for the entire hour. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're on the uh, homestretch here of the uh, Talent Talk radio show today. We have a fantastic guest with us who's been giving us all sorts of great uh, information and wisdom and sharing with us some great stories about his life and the great people he's worked with. Uh, before we get back to the last few questions we have, just a reminder you can subscribe to the podcast of this show and listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net or talenttalkradio.com and uh, subscribe to have the show sent to you. Marshall, uh, again, thank you for being here. And uh, I don't want to tell, you know, secrets out of turn, so you tell me if we need to skip this question. But when I was uh, down and we took that walk. You talked a little bit about what your new book was going to be about. and
2: Sure. Happy uh, to talk
1: about it. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of that idea about employees having a responsibility to do something for the company. You know, what, what what can they do as opposed to what can the company always do for them? So maybe you can talk a little bit about that idea.
2: Well, I was at the presentation at the National Academy of Human Resources, and these are the top HR people in a lot of big companies. And Three of the top HR leaders were basically given a mission, and they tell the group everything you can learn about employee engagement. And these are very smart people, so everything they said was good. They talked about empowerment and training and, you know, uh, supporting people and good environments and good leadership. I realized as I listened, 100% of the dialogue was what can the company do to engage you, and absolutely zero is what you can do to engage yourself. Well, as I listen to this, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Everything I said is great. They're just missing half of the point. I mean, I fly on constantly on American Airlines, and I'm on a three-hour flight. One flight attendant's positive, motivated, upbeat, enthusiastic. One's negative, bitter, angry, and cynical. Everybody's been on that flight. Well, same pay, same uniform. What's the difference? It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. That got me really focused on the concept of taking responsibility for our own lives. You know the famous John Kennedy speech, that's not what your country can do for you, ask mm-hmm. what you can do for your country. Everything on employee engagement was the reverse of the John Kennedy speech. It was 100% what the company can do for you and nothing what you can do for anybody. Right. So I'm sitting here thinking this is really training people in some you know, odd way of thinking that they have no responsibility for their own lives. So I've now focused on teaching people a process to help them get focused on their own lives. And, you know, it's worked shockingly well. And the new book I'm going to talk about, Triggers, really talks about the importance of getting us to focus on how we can make a positive difference and how can I take responsibility for creating the person I want to become in the future and not sit there and blame somebody else or wait for somebody else to create the new me, but take responsibility to do it myself.
1: Yeah, I almost have this this visual of, you know, someone on their very first day putting their feet up on the desk and saying, inspire me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that should be the cover of your book. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but it's a fascinating idea that, you know, I, I think... There are people that do take responsibility. I think people listen to the show are, are taking responsibility. They want, they want to learn something. They want to, you know, be inspired or, or exposed to something they didn't know. But there are so many people within an organization where that's not the case. And certainly I'm happy to hear that you're, you're tackling that. And maybe that might be the next kind of big thing that we start talking about is how can the company help those that want that kind of uh, thing and how can how can you as an individual do that on your own or, or provide that back to a company?
2: I'll give your listeners the opportunity to participate in research. So if any of your listeners want to participate in this research, all they have to do is send me an email and just say, I would like to participate in your research. Every day, for 10 days, they get asked six questions. Same six questions every day. Question number one, and every question starts with, did I do my best to? Mm-hmm. Did I do my best to? Number one, set clear goals. Number two, make progress toward goal achievement. Number three, find meaning. Number four, be happy. Number five, build positive relationships. And number six, be fully engaged. Every day did I do my best to do these six things. Set clear goals, make progress toward achieving those. Find meaning, be happy, build positive relationships, and be fully engaged. Every day. I've done 79 studies so far, 2,500 participants. The results are amazing. Just by getting people to focus on those six questions every day that start with, did I do my best, what have we learned in our research so far? Um, Something like 37% of the people 10 days later say I'm better at everything. About 65% feel that they're getting better on at least four of six. 88, 89% say they got better on at least one maybe 11% said no change and something like 0.4% said they got worse. Why? Every day it gets you to focus not on what you cannot change. Every day these questions get you to focus on what you can change. And the one thing we cannot blame somebody else on is an answer to a question that starts with, did I do my best? Mm -hmm. Whose whose job is it for me to do my best? That would be my job.
1: And I think, yeah, you're right. A lot of the idea here is that uh, maybe that we've gone away from that a little bit, that it's somehow the company's job to help you do your best as opposed to it being your job to do your best. Exactly. And so in doing our best, I'm, I'm wondering, though, if there might be a, a specific skill or technique that you feel really contributes to your own success that was maybe something you had to work on early on in your career uh, to, to be better at.
2: Oh, well, I think um, Paul Hersey, who I mentioned, gave me some advice that I didn't listen to for 12 years. I was very successful. I made a lot of money and was doing well in teaching classes. And he said, you know, you're too good at what you do. Uh, you're going to just run around, sell days, make a lot of money, but you really won't make the sacrifice you can to do research and writing, and you won't be the person you could become because you're just too comfortable and you're too busy doing what you're doing. I basically lived that prophecy out for 12 years. Had to live my professional life over, I would make that one change. I would have started much earlier focused on how can I make a difference. And it's interesting listening to you talk. What's the one thing you dinged yourself for? Not writing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty easy when things are going well and you're successful to fall into what I call the good enough trap. You know, I'm making money, I'm doing pretty well here, Or good enough. And not really push ourselves to be... What we could be,
1: mm-hmm.
2: because we're too comfortable. So just from talking to you, maybe that's not just my problem.
1: No, I think I think that's a universal for most people. It's really easy just to, to allow things to be good enough, or to allow things to be uh, distracting or difficult enough to, yeah. to keep you away from where you really want to be or envision yourself to be uh, or need to be right or need to be right i mean I, yeah. it, it's it's huge and in case anyone wants to be in that uh study uh, he did mention his email earlier it's marshall at marshall goldsmith.com is that correct
2: that's it and marshall has two l's
1: Marshall has two L's, well, so if you want to be uh, in the research there, uh, it's a great opportunity to send him off that email, and you, you can jump in there. Uh, you know, we talk a little bit at, at, on the show about working creatively with teams. It does seem to be something that a lot of companies across the board really struggle with and maybe that's some of the things you talked about about us as leaders wanting to be the smartest one in the room or contribute mm-hmm. to to the idea but do you have any suggestions on a very general level a, a, a leader of a meeting can do let's say just any leader to to be more to get more creativity and, and more out of the people in the room
2: well i've got an article called team building without time wasting if anybody'd like a copy just send me an email or go to my website team building without time wasting it's a very straightforward process and you stand up in front of the team and say on a 1 to 10 scale, two questions. How well are we doing in terms of working together as a team? And question two, how well do we need to be doing? The average team says we are a 5.8. We wish we were an 8.7. Then you say, okay, how can we close the gap? Then you practice feet forward. you say, let's look forward. What is one thing we could all do better to improve teamwork? And you have everybody pitch in and prioritize, pick one thing. You can't talk about people, only behavior. Then each person talks to each other person and says, for example, We've all agreed to be better listeners. So other than being a great listener, give me a couple things I can do better to move teamwork forward here in the future. No feedback about the past. And they say thank you. Then everybody has a list of things. You tell each person, pick one. And you have a very simple three-question follow-up process. And the process is each person says to each other person once a month, you know, we all said we wanted to be better listeners. Give me one idea to be a great listener next month. Two, I said I want to better at recognition. Give me one idea. And three, I just want to be a great team player. Give me one idea to help me. Follow-up, follow-up, follow-up measurement. Follow-up, follow-up, follow-up measurement. You'll get more long-term improvement in team building doing what I just described than you will shipping people off to the woods for months where they can hold hands and climb trees. But when they get back to the real world, nothing changes. Why? Follow up measurement discipline. Follow up measurement discipline, and it doesn't take much time.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to commit here on the radio so that I have a reason to do it. That I, you know, we wanna I want to do that feet forward exercise for sure in our next uh, you know, team meeting. I think that's going to be a, it's a really great way to try to engage everyone and to work forward positively and not worry about those things in the past, which I think is a really, really. It's a really important part of what i think holds a lot of groups back is constantly looking backwards at what we did wrong and who you can blame and what this you know they said or didn't say uh instead of how can i be better going forward and and uh focus on those behaviors instead of on people or the past events
2: you know four words help more judge less
1: Help more, judge less. Well, if you have gotten anything from today's uh, interview, I hope uh, that might be it, and I hope we've picked up a few more things. But, Marshall, thank you so much for being our guest. We would love to have you come back anytime you'd like to talk about what you're doing or uh, your next book. And uh, we'll certainly, hopefully, our cross pass again at one of these conferences sometime soon. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, thank you again to Marshall Goldsmith for being my guest for the entire hour. Tune in next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, to hear Zing Shaw, U.S. Director of Diversity and Inclusion and the head of Southwest HR, Edelman. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
0: You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. Brought to you by People G2.